Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. After the mass shootings in Georgia and Colorado, the issue of gun violence is back on the agenda. Passing federal gun control legislation is always tough, but given the partisan divide in Washington, the odds are especially long right now. But there's a growing sense that Democrats and others concerned with gun violence are going about it all wrong. That focusing on mass shootings when most gun deaths happen in the home or in neighborhoods is a bad strategy. This hour we'll discuss the reasons behind gun-related deaths and the most effective ways to prevent or reduce gun-related deaths, suicides, and violence. That's next on Forum right after the news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Mina Kim. And this hour, we're delving into one of the most contentious issues in the U.S., gun violence, and what to do about it. The most common solutions we hear from Washington involve things like background checks on gun purchases and bans on high-capacity assault weapons like AK-47s, you know, traditional gun control measures. But our guests this hour think that focusing on preventing mass shootings can overlook the fact that these high-profile tragedies actually represent a small part of the problem and that focusing on those is unlikely to address the big picture of gun violence in the U.S. Let me tell you who's with us today. Mark Fullman is National Affairs Editor with Mother Jones Magazine. Mark, good to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be here. Also joining us, Abene Clayton. She's a reporter with The Guardian and their Guns and Lies in America project. Abene, welcome and good morning to you as well. Good morning. Happy to be on. Let me begin with you, Abene. Uh, this seems yet again that we are, you know, on the heels of this most recent news, the shootings in Georgia and Colorado, that we're entering into sort of an old, familiar and somewhat depressing pattern. Mass shootings, widespread outrage, calls for change, talk of gun control, and then Congress does nothing. Um, what is your take on why that pattern repeats? Well, I think that people, most people who don't look at this uh, problem on a day-to-day -day basis just aren't um, fully aware and educated on the true burden of gun violence. And so many American minds and in even the minds of officials, mass shootings represent the biggest gun violence crisis in the state. And there is so much research um, to the contrary, but it's rarely uplifted. It's not something that people often talk about. It's something that um, mainly affects a lot of black and brown communities who are underrepresented um, in terms of being talked about on the the news, having their stories delved into. So I truly think that a lot of people just don't know that addressing solely mass shootings is ineffective. And the ways that we go about 
addressing mass shootings in terms of legislation is so marred in partisanship that it's quite impossible to to get anything truly meaningfully done. So people become, you know, cynical and it feels perhaps easier to do the same song and dance than to um, dig into what the research shows accounts for the most violence and is preventable with a kind of um, panoply of um, solutions that I'm sure we're going to get into later. Yeah, we definitely will. But, you know, it's interesting because you say, and it's certainly true that, you know, the, certainly the media focus on these mass shootings and how can you not? They're terrible tragedies and uh, that's understandable. But, you know, at the same time, when you watch or when I watch local news, it seems like that's all they're doing is, you know, violence and crimes and guns and shootings. And is that but is that part of the problem in a way that people become sort of numb to it? Um, I think that talking about it is not a part of the problem. The way we talk about it is what can either drive conversations towards solutions or become that um, stereotypical. If it bleeds, it leads. People are tired of hearing about death and destruction that um, I think you're alluding to. So I think that if we um, in local media were to talk about gun violence with the same sort of depth and nuance that um, and care, frankly, for the victims that people try to talk about mass shootings with, then maybe we can get out of this rut of, oh, I'm tired of hearing about another, you know, nameless and faceless man or woman shot in um, Oakland to talking about the reasons behind these things, what community led efforts there are to kind of expand people's idea of what gun violence coverage could be. And Mark, gun violence, of course, is a very complicated subject. Uh, and you have said that it's time for a more holistic approach. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think uh, picking up on what Abane is saying, you know, this is such a, a complex and, and big problem in our country. And I think it just really demands much broader thinking about what we can do about it. Um, you know, one of the issues we have not only with the, the kind of excessive focus on, on these certain kinds of public mass shootings, like we saw again recently in Boulder and Atlanta, uh, there are these myths that we keep recycling about the problem, too. Um, and one of those, in, in my view, is that, you know, nothing can really be done about this and, and nothing ever happens, nothing ever changes. And as you pointed out at the top of the show, there's obviously truth to that at the federal level with Congress uh, and federal legislation. But the fact is, you know, there's been enormous change over the past decade on this issue at the state and local level. Um, and when I say this issue, I mean gun violence more broadly uh, in terms of policy ideas and, and strategy and grassroots movements to try to affect change through more community-based intervention models. Um, there are various examples of that and versions of that around the country. Um, and I think there are some emerging strategies and tools that offer quite a bit of hope and, and progress on the issue of gun violence with mass shootings and beyond. Uh, one in particular that I've spent a lot of time studying and researching uh, for a book that I'm writing is, is known as uh, Behavioral Threat Assessment, which is a community-based intervention strategy to intervene with people who show warning signs of, of planning attacks. Um, and I think is particularly germane to the school shootings problem that we see consistently around the country. Uh, so there really is a much broader based way to look at the problem of gun violence. And there is quite a bit of progress, I think, on various fronts with it that doesn't tend to get the attention after we have an event like we just had in Boulder, Atlanta, 
the discussion in the national press tends to be the same thing over and over again, the debate about background checks and how Congress will never do anything about it. And, and we are going to be talking in just a few minutes with somebody who does that kind of work in Los Angeles. But, Mark, I just want to follow up on that because, you know, some of these shootings, I mean, the most horrific one that comes to mind is Sandy Hook. But, uh, you know, there have been shootings at school, Columbine, and uh, it seems that the immediate reaction is to increase security at schools, have security guards, have metal detectors. You know, the NRA famously, uh, Wayne LaPierre said, uh, you know, the only way to, to you know, to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a gun. I mean, how do we get caught up in those, those cycles of those conversations, which you say don't really generate real solutions? Right. Well, I, I think it's because that has become the ingrained political frame for the debate. And another big part of it, too, is the debate over mental illness. And, and there's a an awful mythology with that, too, that gets perpetuated. We just saw it again after Boulder with uh, the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, saying on television that, oh, you know, this is all about finding the people who are mentally ill. Um, and, and that's just flat out not true. Most of the people who commit these attacks don't have clinically diagnosed mental illness and it creates terrible stigma and doesn't solve the problem. So I think the political framework that we've grown so accustomed to with this problem is is quite detrimental. And that includes, as you point out, physical security. There's really no evidence to show that those measures will prevent attacks of the kind that we're talking about. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I became so interested in behavioral threat assessment and intervention prevention strategy that looks at behavioral warning signs that, you know, no metal detector is going to stop a person in a way that you might look at, hey, this is a, a kid who's in crisis, uh, despair, angry, enraged, and, and has gotten a gun and, and plans to go out and use it. Um, so I think that, you know, we really need to get past the, the kind of um, stereotypical and entrenched views that uh, of this issue that are largely based on things that are, are not necessarily even true. That's Mark Fullman. He's National Affairs Editor for Mother Jones Magazine. We're talking with him and Abine Clayton with The Guardian and their Guns and Lies in America project. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim, and uh, we're talking about gun violence, what to do about it. And uh, Abine, when you think about the things that are being discussed nationally, whether even if they are somewhat limited in their effectiveness, uh, one that always polls like with 85% support, bipartisan support, is background checks. Uh, and perhaps a waiting period before somebody can just, you know, walk in and get a gun. What are your thoughts about that and, and other uh, things like the assault weapons ban, things that, you know, Congress does try to do or talks about anyway? Uh, you know, how effective would those things be if they could get through Congress? Totally. Well, I will start with um, the background checks and kind of this universal registry is another thing that I see come up often. But certainly background checks are um less partisan. In my mind, the true value of things like um, background checks and um, this registry would be for research purposes, could be a way to uh, trace guns back to their original sources if they're found at the, the scene of something horrific. Those sort of things um, I think would be super helpful on perhaps the research side. And like I said, learning the, the true burden of gun violence and knowing what we are actually trying to uh, address. Um, in terms of assault weapons bans, um, I certainly don't want to diminish the value of, of anything that tries to address the, the supply of firearms, but I always 
um, like to keep in mind that when it comes to the majority of shootings in communities, even suicides, you're going to be talking more about um, handguns. You know, we the the AR-15 is something that always comes up after these um, after mass casualty events that are high profile and those and those sort of things are just um, they're very, I think, honestly, kind of scary for people to look at when people talk about the capacity they have for um, killing large numbers of folks. Of course, that's something people see as a quote unquote weapon of war that they want off the streets. And I think that in my mind, it people would feel more um, comfortable if that was um, gone, which I which there could yeah. certainly be some value to that. But these things certainly don't make me too hopeful in terms of driving down that true burden that I um, yeah. mentioned. And, and Abine, we're coming up on a break, so I'll ask you to give an, uh, a relatively short answer here. But you mentioned research, and after a 25-year ban on federal research into gun violence, Congress is now funding it again. What do you think that might tell us? I think that it would um, be helpful in terms of disaggregating racial data, um, disaggregating locational data. I think a lot of uh, really good things could come out of it so people have a better understanding of where to focus their attention, legislative efforts, and um, their thoughts and prayers, truly, which um, which are, are helpful when they're uh, distributed equitably, which right now they're not. All right. We're going to continue our conversation. What are your concerns about gun violence in America? What should we as a nation or a state or local government, for that matter, do to reduce gun violence? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866 866- 733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. We're going to come right back after a short break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. We're talking about preventing gun violence uh, with Mark Fullman. He's national affairs editor for Mother Jones magazine and Abine Clayton. She's a reporter with The Guardian and their Guns and Lies in America project. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, your thoughts about what works, what might work, any experience you have with uh, these kinds of, uh, you know, gun safety programs or reducing violence in the community. 866-733-6786 is the number to call again. 866-733-6786. And Mark, um, you know, California is a state that has enacted quite a few limitations on guns, where you can buy them, who can buy them, um, red flag sorts of laws. And yet, as we all know, Nevada, right next door, doesn't have those kinds of restrictions. And so guns can come in that way and other ways as well. So what is the effectiveness then of a statewide uh, law or policy or, or, or a local one for that matter? Yeah, well, it's it's decidedly a mixed picture uh, because, as you point out, the national landscape is is quite a, a, a complex puzzle of different rules or lack thereof. 
but there is quite a bit of research at this point showing strong correlation between tighter gun regulations and less violence. I mean, it's, it's sort of intuitive and basic that, you know, when you have a lot more guns around, there is going to be more gun injury and death. And, and research, research shows that. So uh, in, in that fundamental sense, uh, gun regulations do have some effectiveness. Uh, but then, of course, it depends what you're talking about. If it's the acquisition of firearms, as you say, you can get them in the state next door. It's not going to necessarily keep them away, but that also makes them less immediately accessible. And that matters, especially in the context of suicide, uh, which is uh, quite a, a large portion of the annual gun deaths we see in the country, about two thirds of the you know, 35 to 40,000 deaths we see annually over the last few years are suicide. And, yeah. and a lot a lot of times that's uh, due to easy access to firearms. So uh, these regulations do matter. Um, and the red flag law that you mentioned is something that's been around in California now for a few years. And, and just describe how that works, if you would. Yeah. So uh, just briefly, it's a, a, a civil uh, tool to where, whereby uh, of primarily families, it, you know, it varies a little bit from state to state, but primarily family members who are concerned about an individual um, posing risk for, for violence, self-harm or harm to others, they can petition a court to temporarily uh, take away firearms from that individual. Um, and this has now been in place for a few years. And there are examples of cases where it seems quite apparent that, that um, serious violence has been averted by the use of this this tool, which is a civil tool versus a criminal one. And, and Abine, uh, Mark mentioned suicides, which of course is a, is a terrible problem. And if you've got a gun lying around the house, especially men, uh, much more likely to use it to commit suicide. Why don't we talk about that as much, given that uh, proportionally those that kind of gun violence, which is directed at the the shooter, um, is uh, you know is so prevalent? That's a, a really interesting question that I'm truthfully kind of parsing out myself. Yeah, like you mentioned, I think the latest statistic is about two thirds of all gun deaths are suicides, mainly men, lots in rural places. Um, and from a kind of journalistic aspect, I've always been kind of taught and have seen modeled a lot of um, hesitance and um, trying in an attempt to be thoughtful about covering suicides kind of for fear of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, more people see it covered. Uh, it, it may put ideas in, in folks' head. There's a kind of um, concern about glamorizing it in a way, giving notoriety to, to what's a really serious issue. However, I think that that kind of um, limits the possibilities for the way uh, we talk about it because people are concerned and it just becomes a kind of flat out, no, we won't discuss this for fear of someone else doing it. Then we never get to the root. We never um, will know, you know, in a widespread way that most gun deaths are um, suicides, which is very important. But I think it's just something that's so difficult to talk about in such a kind of hard um, thing to tread that uh, we don't. And also um, the fact that it's majority uh, men and, and white men, there's still a lot of shame and stigma around um, suicide and where it happens and the reasons behind it, economic, you know, desperation and unaddressed mental health issues. It goes very um, deep. So I think that people may just not know how to discuss it in a way that's nuanced enough to to put it on this high platform without fearing 
the kind of unintended consequences that I know so many newsrooms try to avoid by not kind of covering suicides, even in the context of the true burden of gun violence. Uh, unintended. You mean like uh, what? Encouraging other people to do it? or Yeah. Yeah. That's always been my understanding, you know, growing up and kind of uh, doing internships and seeing how, you know, more experienced journalists did it whenever a, um, a report of a suicide came across wires. Usually it wouldn't get covered from what I've seen. There was just kind of this standard and this practice that like we don't really cover suicides, you know, um, for mm. fear of, of, of copycatting. And um, that's something that is, uh, it's really, really tough and really complicated. But I think if we talk about it in the proper context with the nuance and go beyond the initial incident into the, the whys and who's trying to do something about it and the burden that this place is, or excuse me, the amount of space that this takes up in the gun violence conversation. If we can get to those more nuanced conversations, maybe those um, standards and kind of reflexive reactions to coverage can start to change and evolve so that um, we can become a more informed public about what is really going on. Excuse me. Yeah. And that reluctance to cover it, I think, uh, in some ways contributes to the whole stigmatization of it, which makes it harder for everyone to talk about. If you don't talk about it, you're not going to talk about it. Yeah, literally. It's just like this cyclical thing. People are afraid of the self-fulfilling prophecy that, okay, you're going to hear about uh, suicide. You're going to commit suicide. But there's this whole other one that's like, you never hear about it. So people don't think it's an issue. They continue to suffer in silence and invisibility. And that kind of creates its own um, issue. So I, I think you're spot on there. All right. I want to take one call before we have another guest. I want to introduce Maggie from the Ventura County Naval Base. Uh, welcome. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Thanks for calling. What's up? Um, so I was just wondering if your guests could discuss what they thought about more comprehensive gun um, kind of like with classes and testing, like more similar to how we get our driver's licenses. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, I know that uh, there was a, you know, sort of a, I don't know, not joke is not the right word, but a commentary really going on around in uh, after the Georgia voting restriction laws went into effect that, you know, you can get a gun very easily in Georgia, but it's a crime now to give water or food to people in line to vote. Uh, so how, what do we do uh, to bring more um uh, sanity, really, to to the ability of people to get guns and to use them properly and to store them properly. Yeah, well, I think that's that point is really just a question of basic regulation, right? I mean, we're talking about um, a, a tool that exists in, in great prevalence, hundreds of millions of guns in, in America. So um, should it be regulated in a way that we do other things that can pose potential danger? I mean, the, the more common analogy often is, is cars, right? You have to have a license and pass a test to drive a car lawfully in all 50 states. So why don't we ha- have that for firearms as well? And I think that's a reasonable discussion to have that is of a piece with the background check discussion. And, and I think that, you know, we, we see consistently with polling that there is majority support of the country for these kinds of basic frameworks to ensure competence and safety with what can be a very, very dangerous and powerful tool. 
All right, Maggie, thanks very much for that question. I want to bring in another guest now. Akil Bashir is founder and executive director of Brotherhood Unified for Independent Leadership through Discipline Program, or BUILD for short. It's a ex, uh, he is an expert on violence, uh, intermediation, public safety, and gang intervention. Akil, welcome to the program. Akil, are you with us? All right. While we're figuring that out, why don't we Got go? You. Okay. There, there we go. Um, good to be here. Thank yeah. You good. Me. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about what Bill does and how you go about uh, interrupting that cycle of violence or stopping it uh, from happening. Well, Bill is our nonprofit uh, 501c3. It houses uh, the PCITI, which is a professional uh, community training institute. Uh, we are a national as well as an international organization uh, that basically deals with uh, interpersonal violence, gang violence, the whole dynamic of the concept of violence as a science. Uh, we have a, a three-pronged process. Uh, we go in in the moment to specifically mitigate. Uh, then once we mitigate or create some degree of stabilization, we look for recovery. We look for the root causes of why an individual chose to use the action of violence uh, to do what he or she did. And then we go out front and look at the preventative causes uh, to try to create templates uh, so uh, we will not have the process replicate itself. Uh, we look holistically at the whole concept of violence, trauma, crisis, et cetera, and create a holistic approach uh, to engage it. Unknown caller. And maybe you could just mute your whoever's laptop that was. Um, but uh, and you're based in L.A., correct? Yes, we're based in L.A. But as I said, uh, we do work through our training institute uh, all over the nation, as well as uh, international work. Yeah. And, and is it funded by the county, by the public health department, by non by just foundations? I mean, where do you get your funding from? Uh, the majority of our funding comes from our uh, self-generated uh, process that we have put in place. Uh, when we go to different cities and actually train their uh, peacekeepers, we train their uh, intervention specialists, uh, we train their public safety entities in terms of the mechanics of the work. Uh, if you would look at the broader scope of our work, we're community-based public safety professionals. So not only do we train people how to engage, how to read, how to manage, and how to intersect uh, with the components of violence, we also build out those infrastructural pieces of uh, the public safety. What does that actually look like? Putting the public back in public safety, creating a coexistence with the police departments to where we developed a concept called shared safety. Everybody has a responsibility for the safety in a given venue, geographical, a geographic reason, region, etc. One of the things that has to happen to your last question, uh, very well put, uh, you have to have uh, proactive training to where you're developing skill sets, not only in those that are using the violence to get them uh, to alter their mechanism or their acceptance of their antisocial rationale to use violence, but you also have to train those communities in how to engage. What are the signs? What are the symptoms? What do you look for? Violence is a science and it leaves a trail. And what happens is time and time again, because most of us do not like uh, things of a negative uh, nature, we tend to look away as it relates to violence. We should actually reverse that and study violence much more. And if we did that, we would get a much better understanding of the components of violence, what they look like and why they are. Lastly on that, violence is always accompanied with a want. Usually a WANT of the individuals that are using violence haven't been met. Uh, they feel that they haven't been listened to. They feel that they're not 
time and time again, inclusive in the process. So the majority of the times violence is used because it gets attention. Violence is used because it's easy and violence gets me the, rec the recognition that I need uh, uh, to, 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 for the most part, uh, to soothe my pain hmm. or, or heal my issues of concern. It seems like a lot of gun violence is, uh, you know, there's some dispute between people who may know each other or live in the same neighborhood, uh, and then there can be revenge shooting after that. So how do you be, if you can be specific, or maybe there's a, even a, a particular example where this worked. I mean, how do you stop that? Like, what do you take, uh, you know, people and put them in a room and talk to them and have them talk to each other and listen to each other? I mean, what, what do you do? That's an excellent question. Uh, one of the components of our work is comprehensive gang intervention. So we deal with uh, numerous shooters on an ongoing basis, both me and my whole team. We're actually practitioners. We're on the ground. So if I was to give you a four-step process, the first thing I would do is look to the shooter. And then I would try to stabilize the situation, whatever that situation might be. I want to get it temporarily stabilized. I'm looking for normality. Once I stabilize, then I'm looking at what is the stress fact factors or what are the triggers or the bombs that is causing this situation to be what it is and this shooter to use a gun and to use violence as a means. Once I see that stress, I'm trying to get that individual to restore himself or herself to a, a common degree of function to where they can uh, function out of the stress. Third, what I'm looking for, what I'm looking for, excuse me, is to mobilize resources. I want to look at the needs and what. What was the uh, the the instigator that caused the individual to pick up uh, the gun to want to use violence? And then I'm gonna look at: Do I have the capacity uh, to provide uh, needs that are uh, socially acceptable, or do I have to look uh, for my network of individuals that I would bring that individual to? And then lastly, a referral connect. I'm looking for problem solving now. Now that I stabilize the individual, de-stress uh, de the individual, uh, determine what the needs and wants are, I'm looking to see if we can get that individual to take ownership. And being that he has those equitable services that we have brought to the table, uh, can we get that individual uh, to see at times of crisis that he or she has options to use other than picking up the gun and doing the damage with violence? And what makes the difference between that working and not working? Credibility. Uh, individuals who have uh, moved to the point to where they want to do damage with uh, the firearm, let me be real clear. If the firearm wasn't there, they would use some other instrument to do that same damage. The reason so many people pick up a gun is because of the degree of damage and the ease it is to carry out their mission. Uh, if you're going to try to talk to a shooter, if you're going to try to talk to individuals who are at that point, they have to have some type of connectability with you. They have to know you understand their normal. They have to know you to some degree have been where they're at or either have had others who have been where they're at. So you understand why they're doing what they're doing to a certain degree. Not that you understand the reason that they want to specifically pick up the gun and shoot, but you understand their trauma. So I'm not going to listen to you if you haven't been in my shoes. I will listen to you if I know you have some understanding of where I'm at. At least I will open the door for you. What you do after that door is open is up to you. And hopefully you have the skills and tools uh, that uh, you can uh, you can get that individual to uh, uh, to look 
to understand that there are other options and uh, to, to, to provide a different mindset. But you can't come in from your perspective. You can't come in saying, because I'm an expert, because I have the capacity, I know what you need to do. You have to see them where they are, even though you might not agree with where they are, you have got to address them from their normal and then try to de-escalate from their normal and bring the additional tools in as they open the door wider for you to do that. And it is a process. Yeah. That is Akil Bashir. He's founder and executive director of Brotherhood United for Independent Leadership through Discipline Program or BUILD. I think, we'll, think we'll use build from now on, Akil, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, also, also with us is Abine Clayton, reporter with The Guardian, uh, and their Guns and Lies in America Project, and Mark Fullman, National Affairs Editor with Mother Jones Magazine. Uh, we're coming up to a break in a moment. Uh, I'll give out the phone number again. We'd love to hear from you and uh, get your thoughts on what, uh, what, what you're hearing this hour, 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Coming up real quick on a break, but uh, Mark, uh, just some quick thoughts about what you're hearing from Akil. It's really so interesting to, to listen to because so much of what Akil's talking about is is precisely the work of, of threat assessment teams that are community-based in schools in this yeah. merging strategy, um, which is really constructive intervention. It's figuring out what the problems are of troubled individuals, uh, figuring out what the stressors are, and looking for ways to intervene constructively to essentially get them the help that they need. All right. So it's, it's, it's really promising, I think, to, that more of this work is starting to happen. All right. Uh, we're going to continue this conversation after a quick break. And again, the number to call if you want to join us is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. Much more to come. We're going to continue our conversation on gun violence and, most importantly, how to prevent it. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour. We're talking about gun violence with Mark Fullman, National Affairs Editor for Mother Jones Magazine, Abine Clayton, reporter with The Guardian, and Akil Bashir. He is with the organization called BUILD, which seeks to reduce violence, working with uh, gang intervention and other uh, things like that. Uh, we have, uh, I think the lines are actually full, but I'll give the number out one more time. It's 866-733-6786. And uh, before the break, uh, there was a question from a caller who actually uh, dropped, but uh, it was a question about how can insurers play a role in regulating guns? Uh, in other words, is there something that manufacturers could or do, in fact, do, Abine, uh, that would be helpful so that we don't you know, have to be waiting for Congress to do something? That's a really interesting um, question. I'm not 100% sure about um, actual manufacturers, but I think on the um, the dealing side, when it comes to to gun stores being 
mindful about not um, selling kind of indiscriminately, you know, um, to ensuring that everyone has their proper paperwork in place, that the background checks are fully um, completed, that there's a sort of um, willingness to ensure that the hands that they're sold into are the hands that they remain in. I think that responsible gun ownership is something that can be emphasized, of course, from manufacturers, but also from the folks who run gun stores in in rural and metropolitan places um, alike. In terms of manufacturers, there are some places that will sell what's called like a a ghost gun kit, which is something that's uh, able to become a firearm, was used for folks who were um, just kind of tinkerers and gun enthusiasts at first and has become a kind of growing issue in being used for, for crime shootings. So I think that if there's a conversation to be had among um, manufacturers, it could perhaps focus on how to discourage, you know, nefarious acts and kind of address the issue of of non-serialized weapons that are making their way into people's hands. Yeah. And along those lines, Norman writes, we have too many guns and the guns are too inexpensive. We need to make guns more costly and remove them from circulation. Make anyone who makes or owns an individual gun financially responsible for any damage caused by that gun through use, sale or theft. Heavily tax gun manufacturing and importation. The government should buy back guns if owners want to avoid financial responsibility for future damage. Lots of good ideas. Eh, a little tougher to get them enacted through Congress these days. But as we're talking about this hour, there are a lot of things that can be done locally. And uh, let's go to the phones. And Chris in San Francisco, you're next. Hi. I just want to commend Akil for the way he speaks about this. I'm a psychologist. I work in substance use disorder treatment and the, the identification of the unmet need, the understanding that traumatized people turn around and traumatize people. And so uh, how do we be more proactive in preventing people from resorting to these horrific acts? If people are leading fulfilled lives, they're not going to turn around and do this kind of stuff. So what are you doing to help people not go down such a dismal path? Yeah. Akil, to what extent does your work uh, begin after violence or when there was a, an, an immediate uh, or an emerging threat of violence versus, you know, prevent real prevention, going in, talking to, you know, with families and uh, community groups and so on to, uh, you know, sort of interrupt it before it even gets to that point? Uh, yeah, our speaker was spot on. Uh, she hit it on the nail. Uh, I've dropped that three-prong process, upfront, in-the-moment recovery. Uh, you have got to implement that tri-nexus if you're truly looking for true ownership and, to, and true directional change in the process. We talked about the guns and, and, and their role that they play. But let's be real clear. If it's only the removal of the gun, the violence is not going to stop. Other instruments will be utilized. We have to get into the mindset. We have to deal with the individual trauma 
that the individual or individuals are facing that causes them to take the action of using the gun. The gun is not the first thing that they uh, see and pick up and go to work. There has been a conscious decision that I need to do some damage to somebody somewhere. What is the best instrument for me to do that? Bam, it is my gun. And then uh, they have came to the conclusion that violence will work for them or that I'm going to use violence because the other options are now there are. I've made a commitment that this is the mode of operation I want to use. So the best, in my opinion, upfront a capacity is to get with them and find out where they're at. What is their normality? What are their issues of concern? And try to get those stabilized and get them to where they can function within the moment to where they're not pushed to an extreme that they feel that I'm going to go out here and do all this damage because I need to be heard. I want my trauma relieved. I want this pain off of my back. And I'm at a point right now, I will do anything to make that happen. So I'm going to go out and do the damage I do with the gun because I cannot take it anymore. We have to deal with the individual trauma. And we need to recognize the stress that is seriously involved in trauma. Stress leads to distress, which leads to crisis, which leads to disaster. We have got to break that continuum somewhere in the process and get those individuals to be able to function in their own normality and to be able to deal with their personal traumas with our assistance, if at all possible. And Mark Fullman, just following up on that, I mean, you can't really talk about what Akil is describing without talking about racial injustice, poverty, family dysfunction, failing school. Right. I mean, it it comes back to what I asked you about at the very beginning, which is a more holistic approach to this. Absolutely. And I think in in that context, we're talking about, um, you know, community and and societal factors, uh, you know, the kind of root structural problems with economic and racial injustice that fuels a lot of the gun violence we see in urban environments. Uh, You know, those are really important root problems. And at, at the individual level, I think what Akil is describing also goes straight to the the problem of misconception we have with mental health and particularly around mass shootings the notion that all of these people are totally crazy and insane and snap and go off and do these attacks Mm -hmm. that's not true they these are people who have problems they have deep problems but they're problems that are addressable um you know they may well have um, some mental health struggles, depression, rage, suicidality, which has a strong nexus with these public mass shootings that happen over and over. Mm. But at the end of the day, very few of them have clinically diagnosable conditions like psychosis. And I think the public perception is that all people who commit mass shootings have that problem. So that really takes away from the focus where it needs to be and distracts from the the kind of um, societal problems that we really need to deal with, whether at the individual level or as you're describing, the more macro level with with um, economics and socioeconomic factors. Akil, sounds like you want to jump in there. No, uh, Mark is spot on. He is, is spot on. Those systemic issues that we have currently faced, if you look at where we're at in the moment with the Systemic issues, uh, uh, systemic issues, excuse me, of uh, racial injustice. If we look at the systemic issues of structural violence, you have seen, based on the last year to two years, uh, the violence go up. And that is a direct correlation to what is happening in the societal structure, which causes the uh, onslaught of the increased violence uh, that our individuals in the societal structure have to face. 
So if we don't, we cannot get the individuals pulling away the guns, the psychological redirection, and not deal with the societal issues that causes so much of the trauma that forces individuals to take the means to use violence and do what they do. All right, let's go back to the phones now. And Michael from Riverside, you're next. Hello, hi. Hey, Michael. How you doing? Good, good. Go uh, right ahead. I was, I was actually calling because... Um, I know the guest, uh, the the phone caller uh, earlier, he was discussing a little bit some of the preventative measures, sort of like counseling and trying to approach the individual before. And um, I, I just, from my own experience, I uh, I understand that like the NRA wasn't really interested in guns guns rights until like the Black Panther movement started. Uh, raising awareness to that. And uh, I just feel like today there's still uh, measures that attack pe- certain people from not, uh, from not having the guns and, and allowing people that, that should have the guns to, uh, I mean, allowing people that shouldn't have the guns to still have the guns. Yeah. And so for instance, um, like a lot of measures are to uh, uh, say that, oh, if someone has a gun and they're going to commit a crime, well, they must have a felony or something. So there's a lot of uh, restrictions on buying a gun if you have a felony, right? But there's a lot of cases, like the one recently with the, the Asian lady, um, they were attacked by a guy that didn't have a felony. You know, and, and the, the guy that went to the movie theaters, he didn't have a felony. And, and those, those guys... Um, Michael, out, Michael you know? let me just interrupt you. You said from my experience at the beginning, do you, do you have some personal experience with this? With, uh, with with um, with with any no, yeah with anything that you're describing there I'm just I'm just curious or is it more like your observations are you saying observation yes okay yes. no I'm sorry I was just trying I thought maybe you did some of the kind of work that Akil does or I, I, that's, I was just trying to see if you had some uh, personal experience doing you know any of this kind of work but but I really appreciate the call thanks for your comments on that uh, Abine anything any thoughts about uh, what uh, what Michael had to say. Yeah, I think it was interesting. I um, recently uh, reported out a story about the kind of uptick in Black gun owners and these groups like the Black Gun Owners um, Association and National Association for uh, African-American Gun Owners, etc. And a lot of that was kind of mentioned that, you know, even um, current gun laws end up being quite uh, racist in a lot of ways and are steeped in keeping guns out of the the hands of um, black people, frankly. And he was definitely um, not wrong. There was there's a kind of legacy of um, black gun ownership going back to, you know, Reconstruction and during um, Jim Crow times into the civil rights movement, you had the deacons for self-defense, as well as the Black Panthers, who after they um, did a demonstration on the Capitol with their long guns um, shown, there was, I forget the name of the um, actual legislation, but that is where we got our um, California's ban on open carry. So I certainly think there is a lot to be said of the um, sort of things that have been put in place, like, you know, you can't have a firearm if you have a felony that are steeped in systemic racism. And there are efforts, you know, there I've heard of a, a lawyer who specifically encourages um, black and brown folks to learn how to get a gun, to get a gun, to get their uh, their license and will help expunge records and to clear things up to 
make a pathway for them to be legal gun owners. So I think it was a, a really interesting point that the caller just brought up and certainly is something worth um, discussing. Yeah. If you're just listening or just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer. You're listening to Forum. And here's a comment from one of our listeners, Janice, who writes, I am a victim survivor of gun violence as my boyfriend was murdered about 35 feet in front of me. Enforcing our current laws and prosecuting criminals would have stopped this premeditated murder and many others. Most of them are already known by law enforcement or were reported and ignored. Akil, would you agree with that? Uh, to some degree. Uh like I said earlier, and to uh, Albany's point, that was the Mulford Act, uh, Albany. So you're, you're spot yes. on. Yes. Uh, to some Thank degree, you. Uh, usually, and we've got to understand the justice system is usually on the rear end of, of of trying to deal with violence. Look at the police department; they come in after the violence has been initiated, after somebody has been killed, etc. We need front end individuals uh, to March point earlier that can get out ahead. Uh, and try to deal uh, with whatever those uh, systemic triggers are and try to negate or defuse those triggers. Uh, so, uh, I mean, when you look at our communities, we should have our communities saturated with wellness centers, safety hubs, places where people can go to really have some degree of recovery. You will never become well until you recover. And in the process of recovery, it is just that, a process. So, uh, yes, look at the laws we have on the book to date. I mean, we have a, a, a predominance of, of laws, but those laws are not affecting the type of consequential results that we look for because at the end of the day, people are at a point to where they're snapping, to where they feel they have no hope to where they feel they don't have the capacity of any degree of options. And so, so many of the shooters, it is not a conscious act to go out and shoot. It is an act that says, I am desperate. I do not feel safe. I do not feel that I can navigate. And don't misread me. I am not giving the shooter or the shooters an out. But what I am giving them is an understanding. If we're truly going to come uh, and, and, and develop the answers and solutions we're looking for, we have got to understand the psychological process which caused them to do what they do and change that process. What if I stop the individual in the moment, but if I have not dealt with the process uh, that, act, that is activating the individual a week later, a month later, a year later, that person is probably going to resurface and do the same thing or something worse because yeah. I haven't got to the root cause. Yeah. I only dealt with the symptom as opposed to the root cause. Yeah. Here's a comment from BB who writes, uh, since the two recent mass shootings in Georgia and Colorado have added to the long history of mass shootings, I agree that we as a country, Democrats and gun safety organizations are going about this all wrong from repealing the Second Amendment, banning assault weapons, background checks, which we should do, she writes, uh, limits on purchases, waiting periods. All these things will not demotivate potential shooters from going on a shooting spree. Mass shootings have their roots in a form of mental illness. And um, I'm just wondering if you would agree with that, Abine. Uh, I mean, mental illness you know, it's easy in this conversation to stigmatize, as we said earlier, mental illness. Most people who are mentally ill don't pick up a gun and shoot people, right? Yeah, certainly. If anything, um, folks with mental illness are more likely to be victims of crime, you know what I'm saying, and victims of abuse. So I certainly think that the way we talk about that is is ableist and is uh, really 
incorrect. You know, I think if when people say mental illness, I feel like folks use it as a, a catch-all for trauma, PTSD, for being perhaps victimized in different ways. And they kind of put it under this umbrella of like, oh, mental illness as a way to say um, there's nothing we can really do about it. You know, that person was mentally ill, whatever was going to happen was going to happen. And I certainly think that that's um, not the case. You know, um, it ends up kind of adding to those um, restrictions that we talked about before being racist. If someone has a history of some sort of mental illness, banning them from owning a gun, again, won't really address the the true burden of gun violence in the same ways that uh, proactive yeah. therapies and meeting people's needs would. We are almost at th- uh, out of time at the end of the hour, but Mark, uh, just quickly, what would you like, if you could just make one policy change or one sort of uh, intervention change, what would it be? What would you like to see done? I think there should be more focus and and, um, policymaking as in legislation, uh, authorizing or mandating and funding for these types of community-based interventions we're talking about. There's a range of them. There is good research showing their effectiveness. And uh, it seems clear that this is another set of powerful tools for addressing this problem so that we're not just perpetually stuck in the same national debate. Uh, Those debates have merit. They're important. Those regulations that are widely supported yet never seem to get through at a federal level. Um, But that can't be the only tool that we pursue. This is a broad and complex problem, as we've been discussing, and therefore demands a very broad and complex solution. All right. Uh, Well, I'm sorry I'm going to stop you there because we're almost out of time. I can hear the music, and that means we're almost at the top of the hour. But I want to thank you all so much. You know, so many of our conversations about gun violence just leave you frustrated because we look to Congress and Washington, and, you know, there's so little they can get done. And in this hour, I think we've heard a lot of things that can be done locally, very, very doable with uh, the uh, right amount of attention and funding. Mark Fullman from Mother Jones, Abene Clayton from The Guardian, and Akil Bashir from Build down in Los Angeles. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. And thanks so much to our listeners for your comments and calls. I'm Scott Schaefer. I will be back tomorrow. Have a great day. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. 
Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.